0: Hi, my is Jay Miller. I'm here with Jessica Hughes today, and we're going to be talking about why it's so hard to write novels about Jesus. Today on this episode of George Fox Talks, I'm talking with my colleague, Jessica Hughes, um, assistant professor of English here at George Fox University. And she has a new book out just this year, Jesus in the Victorian Novel, Reimagining Christ. And so we're going to be talking today about, um, very straightforwardly, how is Jesus represented in novels and, um, what are the stakes of that? And it reminded me as I was reading this book of an experience I had in graduate school, we were reading, uh, texts, um, it was by John Woolman, an 18th century Quaker writer who I do quite a bit of work on. And Woolman is very politically, socially aware, very kind of forward-looking in certain ways. And in the seminar, people were really picking up and enjoying that about the text, appreciating that, found it striking. Woolman's also a Quaker. Um, he's broadly very Christian. And we got to the end of the discussion, and we were kind of talking about the political upshot of woman's analysis and one of the things someone in the seminar said is yeah I find this really compelling but at the end it feels like his answer is just kind of Jesus is the answer and that felt unsatisfying and I thought that was valid in a certain way um and Jessica, I think your work really helped us understand why we can be so dissatisfied with representations of Jesus in nonfiction but especially in fiction so, I wonder if we could start off by just talking about why it's hard to write about Jesus, to write a novel about Jesus.
1: Yeah, so I think there's there's a few reasons why it's complicated to write a novel about Jesus. One is, and I think in, in the example you give especially, there's a sort of um, Jesus is the expected answer, especially in religious texts and religious communities in a way that can feel really tired after a while, you know, like, yeah, okay, yeah, Jesus, whatever. Um, And so partly we just have this conditioning that where when Jesus is always the answer, it starts to feel like uh, not a very helpful answer to the real problems and the real brokenness that we're facing in the world. Um, So I think that one of the problems that any sort of novelist or film producer or TV producer, anybody trying to tell stories about Jesus is Mm -hmm. facing is if you really, truly believe that Jesus is somehow the answer to the brokenness and and the suffering in the world how do you present that in a way that will overcome people's kind of preconditioned frustration Mm -hmm. with, yes, we've heard that a million times and the world is still broken. You know, if Jesus was the answer, why are we still suffering the way we are? If Jesus was the answer, why haven't we learned to have healthy relationships and healthy communities yet? And so just like overcoming that sort of frustration of history and, um, preconditioning is one of the challenges. Um, I think a second big challenge with putting Jesus in any sort of literary context is especially modern literary forms. And in particular, the realist novel that I look at requires us to engage, um, real human psychology in in-depth sorts of ways. Um, and as much as we might affirm in, you know, doctrine, um, you know, Christologies that Jesus is both fully God and fully human, th- the actual working out of what that looks like in a real life lived in a network of relationships with other humans um, is hard to imagine and messy, and it frequently starts to put us in places that either push against our assumptions that have been shaped by piety that aren't necessarily theologically mm-hmm. necessary, mm. or it starts to push against um, like actual you know theologies of of you know what does moral moral perfection actually look like mm-hmm. um, you know is Jesus allowed to get angry and lose his temper? Is, is that morally permissible? Is Jesus allowed to um, behave in such a way that he causes a great deal of anxiety and worry for um, the people around him? Is Jesus allowed to uh, be kind of rude in answering people's questions? Mm-hmm. Um, is Jesus allowed to question himself? You know, can, can he wonder about his own mission and purpose and effectiveness? Um, and, and those are just some, you know, kind of safe sorts of questions. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I joke with my kids when they you know, ask me about like, what is it I work on? Um, th- one of the ways that I help them to understand it and, and that I have, you know, since they were um, a little bit younger than they are now is, well, like I, I work on the problem that Jesus pooped. And how do we write a novel about that? Yeah. Um, you know, how, how do we take like real bodily experience about Jesus and make it appear in a novel. So, so that problem really of the incarnation yeah. is I think one of the, the issues that people face when they're gonna write about Jesus. And if you're gonna do it well, you're probably gonna anger some people's pious assumptions. Yeah. And if you don't do it well, then Jesus is gonna feel dumb, distant, boring, um, ethereal. Yeah. And, and so you're kind of stuck in a, in a bind as a, as a writer.
0: Jessica, one of the early chapters in your book that I really enjoyed, just the level of the title was a chapter called The Narrative Consequences of Theology. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by highlighting those narrative consequences and what some of the main theological um, commitments you're interested in in your study?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that interested me as I was reading a lot of um, 18th century conversion narratives coming out of the evangelical revival is that the interesting part of the story was not about God, but was about the sinner. So, um, in, in the 18th century, the Wesley's, um, collected stories of people's conversions and they'd be circulated in magazines and, and these stories were wildly popular. And as I was reading them, um, and reading Bruce Heinmarsh's work on the evangelical conversion narrative as well, which is a a fabulous work, uh, worth checking out. Um, it was interesting how much like God felt like, like the Butler or like the, the Mm -hmm. fairy godmother who would step in, in the middle of the story and, you know, Jesus saves you from your sins and kind of, you know, gives you a nice fancy new dress and sends you back out on your way to Mm -hmm. a a fulfilled and restored life. And I was really interested in that because the content of the stories was affirming good atonement theology. you know, Jesus is the one who has suffered the penalty for the sins of humanity and through faith in him, we are saved. And, And that was affirmed over and over again in the content but but the reason the story was interesting wasn't because of the theology. It was mm-hmm. interesting because of the sinner and the life of you know, whatever sort of debauchery they had become involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so that shape of that conversion narrative, right? I've got my life, I have some sort of fall that leads to a downward spiral where I finally hit rock bottom and then some sort of intervention takes place that pulls me back up. Um, you know, that's the story that is interesting. That's the story that matters. And one of the things I started to think about was how atonement theology actually kind of forces us to tell that story. Mm. We all know the story that Jesus died for our sins, yeah, that's not an interesting story anymore. Mm-hmm. So the interesting story becomes all the different ways that we screw up, and that you know Jesus gets to be the fairy godmother who comes in and, and fixes things, or the mm-hmm. butler who comes in and fixes things um and, and so we see that going on in 18th century um, conversion narratives quite a lot, and we see that exact same format picked up then in in in, no, in realist novels in the 19th century, especially with um, you know the Bildungsroman and all sorts of conversion novels. I mean, we even see it in popular television to this day. Um, mm-hmm. House renovation shows are an example of conversion narratives. You know, the house that was that has fallen into disrepair, and we are now going to fix it up. Um, Uh, You know, um, makeover shows, all these sorts of things are, are versions of conversion narratives. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't need God at all in those stories. What, what is interesting is the story of decline and fall and um, redemption as each individual experiences it. So then, how do you tell a story about Jesus in there? Like, what does it mean to tell the story of Jesus when he's not dying for the sins of the world? right? Like when he's not circumscribed by this great act of self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. who is he? And what is he? Um, and in the nineteenth century, there are a number of things that start to draw attention to that historical story of Jesus when he's not dying for the sins of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes an interesting thing then to think about, because as I was saying, you know at the beginning, telling stories about Jesus's life is messy. What do we you know how do we think about Jesus? what is he morally allowed to do? what is he physically allowed to do? what is he mm-hmm. um what sort of relational things is he allowed to to say? how is he allowed to behave to people mm-hmm. as long as he's just dying for the sins of the world, all of that's kind of safe. We don't have to worry about what Jesus is allowed to do in a story. Um, if we're going to tell the story of Jesus as an incarnate, real, fully human being mm-hmm. that creates problems and that's that's kind of what we start to see in the nineteenth century and then that's where most of my my research ends up going right so
0: there's a shift from a focus on atonement to a focus on incarnation in the Mm -hmm. 19th century and that gets us into the victorian period a little bit could you say a little bit about what is the victorian period kind of in a broad cultural Mm -hmm. um in broad cultural terms and why the incarnation sort of flares up as an important question during that period
1: so there, there are a number of kind of features. I mean, technically speaking, the Victorian period is 1837 to 1901, um, the years that Queen Victoria reigned. Sure. But it's, it's really a broader period yeah. than that in the 19th century, obviously. Um, some of the things that are characteristic of the Victorian per- period are industrialization. Britain is undergoing massive industrialization in the 19th century and that's creating all sorts of new wealth and um, you know new opportunities it's also creating all sorts of new technologies that start mm-hmm. to change the way that life has looked um, and and one of the big kind of parallel or, or related um, uh, sort of themes of the 19th century is then of course science yeah because you, you can't really have all of that industry without scientific innovation um, but this also, you know, occurs in the natural sciences and kind of just the ways that we think about the world become increasingly scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, you have rapid urbanization in the 19th century. So people are, are flooding into the cities at the beginning of the 19th century, 25% of the British population lived in urban areas. By the end of the 19th century, 25% of the British population lived in rural areas. Mm-hmm. So that just gives you an idea of the, the, the rapid changes mm-hmm. people are experiencing there. Um, it's a time of revolution, um, both in England and across the continent. Um, you know, you know, the, the end of the 18th century, we have a number of big revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Um, but throughout the 19th century on the continent, there are uh, revolutions taking mm-hmm. place. Um, and in Britain, there's kind of a, a desire to reform things slowly. They don't want the sort of um, chaos that war brings, but you've got you know, three different reform bills that slowly open up the franchise to mm-hmm. wider and wider um, selections of voters. You have also um, revolution going on in how the church relates to society. Mm. And this is a big thing. In um, 20, uh, 1829, you have the repeal of the Test Corporations Act. And then um, a couple years later, Catholic Emancipation, which basically the, the combination of these two uh, changes means that people who are not communicants of the Church of England can now be in, like, government jobs and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and so that, you know, like, what is what is the relationship between being British and being part of the Church of England starts to um change at that period Um, the other thing and this is in some ways england has its own sort of unique story of this biblical scholarship starts to um really shape the way that people are thinking about the biblical text Mm -hmm. so this is part of that sort of the the increasingly scientific mindset Mm -hmm. um you know these texts are the biblical text is an ancient text and as people start to um you know Archaeological discoveries made possible by expanding empire, um, you know, just new awareness of how other cultures work um, starts to put pressure on the biblical text in new ways. But so do scientific discoveries. Lyles' um, geology, which came out in three volumes between 1830 and 1833, argued that the world was not 6,000 years old. And we could tell this from geological records that, you know, it's, it's way, way older than that. Well, what does that mean for... The first few chapters of Genesis, um, you know, and Darwin obviously was um, also an, another moment of like, oh wait, so maybe there wasn't a unique creation for humans as we see recorded in Genesis. What does that mean for the biblical text? Um, by 1860, you know, most uh, educated people in Britain did not believe that Jonah was in fact swallowed by a whale, and they're that you know, so what do we do with that sort of a story? Mm-hmm. Um, but these sorts of ways of reading the biblical text then also start to put pressure on the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, we have four Gospels, but they give different timelines for events. Um, John looks really different from the synoptics in a lot of ways. Um, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, when When did things happen? How did they happen? What order did they happen in? Well, if the Gospels are not giving us a consistent picture, then did it really happen at all? Um, how much of this is made up? These sorts of questions start to enter sort of um, uh, British thinking in, in a profound way throughout the first half of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And combined with this increasingly sort of scientific mindset and all the new things that we are creating and the sense of revolution, um, all of this kind of forms a sort of perfect storm to start asking, well, well who was Jesus and how mm-hmm. do we know who Jesus was? And um, OK, maybe we can deal with, you know, Genesis not being what we thought it was, but Jesus is the heart of Christianity. So mm-hmm. if our stories about him aren't true, mm-hmm. what do we do with that? And so this this becomes um, what is often talked about is the crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. I would point out it's only a crisis of faith if Christian faith is assumed to be widespread. Right. So it's it's not so much that um, Britain suddenly became um, a godless, atheistic country uh in the 19th century but it's that right. there was this assumption of christian belief and people started going wow the way we've believed the way we've read scripture might not work in the modern world
0: right and it seems like it kind of raises this question maybe we could talk about that a shift from a focus on atonement to mm-hmm. a shift to a focus on incarnation as people are sort of go from answering the question well what did jesus do mm-hmm. for me to who is Jesus in the first place? Precisely. And why is he significant? So how's that question get get worked out in literature? Especially with going back to this question of how do you write a novel about Jesus? Like how do those questions about Jesus specifically appear in Victorian literature that you're interested in?
1: Yeah, so I think, yeah, the who is Jesus in the first place, I think, is exactly yeah. the question that starts yeah. to emerge for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because if we can't answer that question as people of faith, then what, is it, you know, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, and the novel seems to be a good place to think about that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also a really horrible place to think about that, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I mean that's yeah. probably why. Um, so... I guess there's there's a few things to keep in mind. One is there's a long tradition in Christian um, communities of writing retellings of the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the novel's an emerging form. It's, by the 19th century, it has emerged. It has become a a successful literary form. Why not tell the life of Jesus in a novel? Mm -hmm. This would be great, right? Historical fiction is incredibly popular. You think about um, like Sir Walter Scott's like Ivanhoe series. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's kind of the heroic and this pastime. I mean, Again, you know, historical fiction, this should work. We should be able to tell a story about Jesus. Um, and, you know, it's also a, a good market. So it, it's kind of got, it, it yeah. seems the perfect place to tell, to retell the Jesus story. Right. Um, it also, the novel gave space for thinking about what a human life looks like, how a psychology develops, who people are in relationship with other people. Mm-hmm. Which, again, all of that should lend itself really well to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for because of the emphasis on conversion narratives in the 18th century as, as a popular sort of genre and the way that that gets picked up in the novel if you're going to tell the story of someone coming to faith in a novel um Jesus should be in there as a character right mm-hmm. like if you could, that, that would that just kind of seems to be an assumption that makes sense. Um, and so a number of novelists try in different ways to make this work mm-hmm. uh, It generally goes spectacularly wrong because, all the things I've just listed that are like, seem like a good reason to tell a Jesus story in a novel mm-hmm. um, become really problematic mm-hmm. about telling a Jesus story in a mm-hmm. novel, especially the stuff about human relationships.
0: Right. And a lot of the one things that's really interesting about your book is you bring out a lot of novels that people might not be as familiar mm-hmm. with. Um, so we're not going to dive into all those novels. Um, because we don't kind of have the time to kind of recount them, but I am interested, is there a particular novel that you discovered yourself for the first time when you were writing this book or that always sticks out to you and you think has a really interesting, um, again, you're not necessarily going off of like amazing, you just said these novels sort of fail on aesthetic terms often, but that failure itself is interesting. Mm -hmm. So is there a particular novel you think of from this Victorian period that you look at that has a really striking Attempts to depict Jesus in terms of what it tells us about um, the effort to write a novel about Jesus in this mm-hmm. period.
1: Um, they all stick out for different reasons. Mm-hmm. It's like asking me which is my you know favorite child or yeah, something. You know, yeah. it's like, they're all unique. They all do different things. Um, I guess the first thing I would maybe maybe to help with this is to kind of clarify some of the different ways they approach putting Jesus yeah, in a novel, sure. and then maybe talk about a couple of examples. Yeah. So. When we talk about putting Jesus in a novel, um, there's the sort of the allegorical, right? And this classic example, Aslan, right? Right? It's Jesus in a novel, except for he's a lion, so you can get away with a whole lot of things and mm-hmm. also not talk about a whole lot of mm-hmm. things. So th- there's that. Um, there's the historical fiction novel, which is um, like Ben Hur, if you're familiar with that text. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an American novel, so you
0: should, yeah. you, you know that one. Yeah, um, or it's a more people might be familiar with the Charles. Heston movie, of course, Hur, yes. Um, which I don't, I don't know how accurate it is based on the novel. It's I, been a while. From it's, it's been a while
1: things. since I've compared the two side by side. Yeah. yeah,
0: and it may be a while until that happens. Yeah, <laughs> probably, <either> <laughs> probably.
1: But as 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 you're watching Ben Hur, at some point, um the historical <laughs> the historical Jesus novel tells the story of people in the first century, and Jesus is kind of like a side character. So you see yeah. Jesus through other characters seeing mm-hmm. Jesus. And this allows writers to avoid a lot of problems, Mm -hmm. right? They don't have to talk about Jesus so much. They can talk about Ben-Hur's psychology and Ben-Hur's relationships. And, oh, then he, you know, sees the man who gives him the water. Right. Um, So that's the historical Jesus novel. There are the lives of Jesus, which are, we're going to actually just retell the life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. These were wildly popular in the Victorian period. And oftentimes, um, uh, you know, some were very pious and just kind of basically like a harmony of the Gospels. Renan's Vie de caused all sorts of uh, scandalous problems because he really emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, and right. it basically Jesus turns out to be kind of a delusional megalomaniac um, who dies because of his own delusions of grandeur. Mm-hmm. Um, but but these are trying to capture that psychology of Jesus, and that's really hard because you're, you're going to push up against piety, um, and just kind of assumptions and what one person thinks is immoral. Another person thinks is fine. And Mm -hmm. that that's a a hugely messy genre. Um, the third type is the, um, transformation of Jesus. And this is sometimes like an imitation of Jesus Mm -hmm. and some like, so, you know, the the character who's kind of life is following the pattern of Jesus's life, but they are not Jesus themselves. Mm Um, this would be in some ways, like every Christ figure in literature could to some extent participate in this, you know, so people who die for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my favorites in the Victorian period that falls into this category is, um, Joshua Davidson, the true history of Joshua Davidson, um, carpenter and communist. Mm. And there's a, a boy named Joshua Davidson who's born to a young Cornish couple, um, he is challenging the local Anglican priest at 12. He, you know, on what, why the church doesn't do what the Bible says. Um, he moves to London and becomes best friends with a prostitute named Mary and mm-hmm. a guy named John. Who's you, know, you, you see how this is I going, see how right? This is yeah. Going. Um, it's, it's really funny and, um, really like really interesting, but also like, like kind of cringeworthy, bad at points too. you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, yeah. that is how people think of Jesus. And that's kind of a problem. Um. Uh, So those are the transformations of Jesus. And then there's the Jesus Redivivus, which is where Jesus, um, Mm -hmm. like comes back to life in the modern context. Mm -hmm. So the novels I look at, um, Joshua Davidson definitely falls into the transformation of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, Adam Bede does as well, which is a George L. It's probably, it's by far the best novel that I look at in terms of like literary quality would end up on college syllabi, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, And in, in that we also see a a character's name is Adam Bede. He, so, you know, marking him as like, uh, you know, the new Adam combined with like in the British history, he's a carpenter, he's a hymn singing carpenter. Um, Mm. and, and throughout the book he's marked as kind of the the human alternative or the human version of Jesus, um, as opposed to Dinah's kind of disembodied spiritualized vision of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Dinah's the Methodist preacher, um, who's one of the main characters in the novel. Um, the other sort of interesting thing you have going on in 19th century novels that's different from all of those categories is where people actually try to encounter the real Jesus in the modern world, but not as a like Jesus has come back to life to live in England. But like the sorts of experiences that people of religious faith report yeah. of encountering Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, those are my favorite because those are the ones that are really trying to do the realist thing. Right. You've like mm-hmm. an Alton Locke
0: mm-hmm. um, by Kingsley. By, yeah. Charles Kingsley. Okay.
1: Um, You have uh, this, this Taylor Alton Locke, who is, um, you know, kind of trying to find himself in his vocation. And eventually he has this conversion experience at the end. where he encounters Jesus. And so in many ways, this novel plays along with all of the expectations of, of a realist novel, right? Mm-hmm. It, um, it's telling the story of Alton's self-development, his engagement with different political movements, his engagement with different religious movements. Um, he's a chartist for a while. You know, it's, it's, it's everything you'd expect a novel to be, mm-hmm. except he gets really sick at the end and someone comes to his bedside and starts to tell him about Jesus. And as Eleanor is telling him about Jesus, he kind of has this quasi-mystical experience of really feeling Jesus's presence and mm-hmm. and really finally seeing him for the first time.
0: Yeah, I think you used the word refracted in yeah. your book to talk about the representation of Jesus.
1: Right. So because, it's never a
0: direct kind of encounter.
1: Precisely, because Alton is hearing about Jesus through Eleanor. Okay. And Eleanor is telling Alton who Jesus is. And so insofar as we as readers are sympathizing with Alton and like engaged in his story, mm if we believe Alton's experience of Eleanor's description of Jesus, we might catch a glimpse of Jesus's readers. Mm -hmm. Um, And so so Kingsley's trying to do this thing that kind of simultaneously protects like all the theology around Jesus and all the piety around Jesus Mm -hmm. while still bringing him into this sort of encounter with the reader through the characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I find that actually really fascinating. It doesn't really work, Mm -hmm. but I find it a really fascinating attempt, right? Because what do we mean when... In like our, our you know, 21st century religious communities, we talk about, you know, I really felt like Jesus was present. Like, what do we mean when we say that? Mm-hmm. Um, what does it mean when we talk about, you know, experiencing Jesus for ourselves or mm-hmm. experiencing Jesus as a community? So I, I appreciate Kingsley is trying to capture that in mm-hmm. realism, saying, no, this is like a real experience that real people have. Yeah. So it should be in a realist novel. Yeah. But how do you do that? Well,
0: yeah, you're kind of looking at, you know, what's the you're, there's a great value to in the novel, realism in the novel. Earlier, you brought up Aslan, the sort of central figure of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, which is very much seen as a Christ Jesus figure. And that's really allegory, you know, yeah. fantasy and allegory. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where a lot of people uh, might feel comfortable in terms of engaging that. Could you say a little bit more about what are the stakes or what's the value of maybe shifting out of the comfort zone of allegory, mm-hmm. which is really prominent. You also start out talking about John Bunyan yes. too in your book. And that's a very familiar sort of genre for Christian literature. Why should we look beyond the kind of allegorical representations of Jesus to more um, risky yeah, um, and maybe not always as neat and tidy, successful literary examples of representation of Jesus, but what's the value in looking to those sort of literary experiments?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, the first and and most obvious reason to me is that the gospels are not allegory, right? Mm -hmm. When the only way we can imagine Jesus outside of the gospels, like, you know, outside the prescribed words of scripture is allegory. In some ways, what we're saying is that we can only imagine Jesus as something that wasn't real, as something that is allegory. And Mm -hmm. Jesus wasn't an allegory. Jesus was a real flesh and blood human being who was fully God and fully human. And that's like a real thing in real history. Mm -hmm. Um, Not something in a storybook, not something in in a, you know, a made up story world of Narnia, but like it was for real. Mm -hmm. And so the first reason I think to engage these attempts and, and, um, continue to, to make them as foolhardy as they may be is to keep pushing ourselves back to that reality, even as just a devotional and imaginative sort of exercise, right? That Mm -hmm. no, he was real and he doesn't only exist in Narnia. He exists here. Um, he existed here and he still exists here, but that's complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the second thing I appreciate about these failed attempts um, and and problematic attempts and semi-successful attempts for Adam Bede is the way they help me read scripture in a new way. Mm-hmm. So when I look at how much expectations, you know, get in the way of um, a book like Robert Ellesmere, which is a, a novel from 1888, it was kind of like the Da Vinci Code of um, okay. The Victorian period, mm-hmm. like people were super up in arms about it and writing these mm-hmm. massive rebuttals. Mm-hmm. Um, William Gladstone, you know, the once and future Prime Minister of of Great Britain, he was on and off again throughout the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Prime Minister, he wrote an eighty thousand word rebuttal to Robert Elsmere. Wow! Um, and as one person quipped, um, one of his parliamentary um, colleagues, it was the only thing that could get his mind off the Irish problem. Mm-hmm. So you know, th- um, th- this book was was a huge deal, but you can see how much um mm-hmm. wards even as she's totally um uh, challenging the reliability of the biblical text you can see how much her like sense of piety and kind of respect for jesus actually gets in the way mm-hmm. of dealing with the character of jesus effectively mm-hmm. um similarly with kingsley for all of the ways he kind of tries to help you see jesus through alton's story mm-hmm you get the sense of, of distance, like he's always afraid to push on it too much mm-hmm. um, or to give too many concrete descriptors.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things that, that, that reading those um, does for me is I go back to the, the Gospels and I'm amazed by how actually vivid the character of Jesus is in Scripture in ways that familiarity sometimes has dulled for me. You know, I've, I've read the passages a million times, so I know what's there, I think. But then I go back and I look at them. It's like, oh, oh, wait, this is actually really different and a lot more interesting than Kingsley's retelling of this story or mm-hmm. than Elliot's retelling of this story or than, than Ward's retelling of this story. And mm-hmm. so I think that's the other reason to engage these is they actually give us um, kind of new eyes to see the things that were right in front of us all along, mm-hmm. but that maybe we we couldn't appreciate um, and, until we see the differences.
0: Yeah, I, I think the idea of literature is kind of, I think there's an easy way to read literature as sort of the confirmation bias of like Mm -hmm. confirming what we already know and what we already like. And there's a place for that. There's a place for like reading literature that's in your comfort zone. But what I really appreciate about your study is how it pushes us to look at stuff that might be unexpected Mm -hmm. or might even we might even think of like, well, well, that's a narrative failure. That's an aesthetic failure. We can't, what can we take from that? But it can actually reconfigure um, how we approach literature and how we approach questions of literature working out theological problems um, and staging theological problems. And I wonder if as a way of concluding um, beyond this study and beyond, it could be Victorian literature, it could be something else. Is there a work of literature for you that readers may be interested in knowing about that you think stages these questions of um, what something like the incarnation means especially well? Again, that could be sort of anything, whether that's a novel, maybe you didn't get to in this period, mm-hmm. or couldn't talk about within your parameters, or something perhaps a little more broad. If there's something like that, yeah. Oh
1: my goodness. So I think one text for me that is very outside of this period, and even even you know different sort of form, would be um, a few years ago Netflix did the show Messiah.
0: Hmm. Don't know. Um,
1: it. Yeah, it was it was just like a one season thing, mm-hmm. and. I found that really compelling in a lot of ways. Um, Partly because of how much it made me go back and check my own assumptions. Hmm. Um, So the premise of the show is that apparently Jesus, somebody like Jesus, you know, like has Hmm. comes and Hmm. he's doing some miracles and in a contemporary, in a contemporary 21st century. Yeah. It's like 14 episodes. It's not too long. Yeah. Um, Um, you know, it it seems like it's Jesus, except, you know, is it really Jesus? And mm-hmm. some people believe that it's, you know, the second coming. Some people believe, you know, think it's just a, you know, something else, right? You know, a charlatan, a problem. Um, we just need to get rid of this guy. He's messing up our systems. Um, and I was really compelled watching it because of the ways that it reframed for me the, the comforts of my own faith. Mm. Like, it's easy to believe in Jesus with 2,000 years of history and tradition and community affirming that this is real and true and good and right. I'm not so sure it would have been so easy in the first century of the common era. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if if I have, uh, you know, the first century equivalent of an upper middle class existence in Jerusalem and, you know, my husband's got a good business going and my kids are growing up and getting ready for... You know, adult life, you know, mm-hmm. there if things are going well for me, and there's some guy who's preaching, and yeah, his sermons are compelling, and I hear he's doing some miracles, but, you know, this is gonna cause problems with with Rome and with the government and put us all at risk. And how do I know he's for real? I mm-hmm. mean, there's a long tradition of of, um, you know, uh, the community worshipping false gods and getting in trouble for it. That's what led to the exiles. you know, I'm not gonna go throw my lot in with some. Carpenter from the Galilee region who's mm-hmm. being followed by a bunch of poor people and fishermen and I don't know that I would like that belief would have been actually I think really really hard in that context mm-hmm. where sure. it doesn't look like um Maybe it kind of looks like what I expected. Maybe it doesn't look anything like what I expected, but it would just trouble all of my systems. And Like, how does that work in all of my nicely established religious, cultural, social, political traditions? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really appreciated this this show Messiah because of the ways that it called me back to how hard faith must have been and the the gift, actually, of tradition and community and that sort of affirmation that what I believe is like intellectually and spiritually valid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that – does that answer the question?
0: That is helpful. I think it brings us back to the original question of, like, why is it so hard to write a novel about Jesus? First of all, it's hard to write a novel, period. And then, like you're saying, the content, uh, the theological content of who Christians believe Jesus is makes that hard to represent. But maybe we also wouldn't want it any other way. Like, you wouldn't want to be able to write an easy novel about Jesus. And maybe it's the easy novels or the easy depictions of Jesus that are the problem, yeah. actually. So – um thanks for bringing up all those questions again the book is jesus in the victorian novel reimagining christ um so thank you for coming on the show jessica thanks for having me this video podcast is a production of george fox digital to find more material like this you can subscribe to george fox talks on youtube apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes comments and reviews and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.